This is a Federal News Network podcast. If cybersecurity is one of the nation's most potent threats, the answer is as much a talent question as technology. That's why, with orders from Congress, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency turned to the National Academy of Public Administration. NAPA evaluated what the agency is doing to help build the nation's cyber workforce. With highlights of what it found, NAPA study co-chairs Karen Evans and Dan Chenock. Good to have you both with us. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. We're excited to be here, Tom. And saying that you two co-chaired a NAPA study is like saying Mozart was some guy that wrote a rondo. And we'll just let listeners know that you both have very long experience in federal government itself and in federal affairs. So let's get to what the NAPA challenge was here. What is it that CISA asked you to do? I guess this was an appropriations bill provision from a year ago from Congress. That's correct, Tom. The congressional staff and, and the members had been looking for several years at the operation of workforce programs generally and especially within the Department of Homeland Security First, it was was the National Programs and Protectorate Division that became the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And uh, there is a, a set of educational programs within CISA that are uh, led out of a directorate underneath uh, the CISA director, who, which provides a lot of work with college and universities and other organizations through grants. And the staff was interested both in how are those programs operating, but also in how are those programs operating going forward in terms of a kind of overall cyber strategy. So they, as you noted, the appropriations noted that DHS should work with the National Academy to do the study. And Karen and I are both fellows of the Academy. Uh, the Academy does studies by through a panel of fellows that kind of provide strategic guidance and direction. We were joined by a terrific panel, uh, Danny Weitzner, Costa Stragas, and Mary Lou Goodyear, their panelists. The work is done by the NAPA study team, uh, led by Sally Yager, and um, their team was great, um, uh, and they did a lot of fantastic work to drive into a question that the panel sought to expand from the original congressional charge, and we worked with DHS and the congressional staff to do so. And that is to say, what's the overall picture of cybersecurity workforce programs in the government? How should that picture best be a line going forward to address key cybersecurity needs of the government and the nation? And then how can the government best align its activities uh, going forward, both CISA and other agencies like the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the Department of Defense, Department of Labor, Department of Education, all of them play a key role and have been doing phenomenal foundational work, but it hasn't always been coordinated uh, effectively from the top. And, and then sure. we were in this, the last thing I'll, I'll point out is that we, we have a new organization uh, on the block, which is the White House Office of the National Cyber Director, uh, which is a statutory office within the White House to lead and coordinate across the government. So all of that created the frame for our work. Yes. And everywhere you look, some agency has a grant program with colleges or universities to try to develop workforce. So it seems like there's a lot of efforts and maybe they don't talk to one another enough. Is that what you found, Karen? Well, I think as as Dan laid the groundwork, there's a lot of foundational work that was done. And the one that I'd like to point to in this particular case, based on the question that you asked, is the National Initiative for Cyber Education, which is the NICE initiative. So these programs are following that framework. So everyone under previous administrations were following the framework. 
what the what the study team found is there is um, some challenges onto what is the long-term outcome, the midterm outcome, and the short-term outcome, and how do you really go about doing that? And um, so, for example, when you talk about grant programs, develop you know going out. Um, they're focused on K through 12, but are they coordinated focused on K through 12 to meet the national need, both in private sector, you know, and public sector? They're following the framework, but are they coordinated in what they're attempting to do to try to close that gap? And that's what the study team was really trying to highlight, that there's a need for that. And that should be through the Chris Inglis National Cyber Director Office, did you find? Chris has a passion for workforce that he's brought forward in his significant career in cybersecurity, as do new leaders at um, the agencies, including Jen Easterly at the the director of of CISA and across the government. And the the thing we found that in driving forward, so there there were a lot of activities, especially the NICE initiative at NIST that Karen mentioned that brought agencies together. There wasn't a lot of sort of gravity from the top, if you will, um, around this. And uh, Chris's office provides that both the institutional structure to do that and the level of, of Im- impact being, being a White House office. And the last thing that we found was that in order to do that, they, they needed to define a North Star. So there's a, there's a lot of different strategic plans um, that have been developed over the years that have a, a lot of really good elements. Um, they're not necessarily shared across the agencies. And we found that Chris's office was well-placed to work with CISA, NIST, and the other uh, key agencies to, to drive that forward, to create that, that strategic framework that all parties can, can buy into and understand sort of how it connects to leadership from the top and move forward. And by the way, that NICE initiative, that dates back a good 12 years or so, correct? Close to 15 years. I mean, I'm dating myself, right? Because the Federal CIO Council has always done uh, workforce studies. Dan knows that. Now we're really dating ourselves, right? And so cybersecurity has always been a critical skill gap that needed to be filled. So what, what you're... And and it goes back to the Bush administration started the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative, which then went into the review that the Obama administration did, right? And so there has been a lot of foundational work, but I do think that one thing that the study team brought forward in the panel was pretty passionate about this is um, when you're looking at this, is it an, when you said government-wide, Government-wide can mean a lot of things. It can mean internal only for federal workforce and the contractors that are supporting them, or it could be a government-wide strategy that's supporting a national need. And so what we found was that really needed to be specified, that it's a national need and that there are a lot of pockets of innovation that are happening across the nation. And um, what, what we're suggesting is, is that through Chris's office, the White House is a convener, that they can bring these different pockets of innovation together to make us go forward so we can close these gaps. Got it. Okay, so before we get to the details of CISA and DHS itself then, that would sound like your major recommendation for almost the White House, really, more than for DHS, is to tie all this together through that office, through that workforce-oriented office that Chris Inglis has been uh, making a lot of headway in running. So the White House provides leadership and strategic guidance. They're not 
we wouldn't say that the panel recommended that they be operational in how they set this up, but that they coordinate and establish a governance framework across the agencies that's based on, notably based on important data. So a lot of the conversation gets done, not necessarily with information that's shared about the progress on cybersecurity across agencies in terms of how the national picture looks and how the government picture looks, as Karen just described. So one of the key findings that the panel made was that you can tie all this together through an increased agreement of uh, and design of uh, data collection uh, and data aggregation to understand sort of what's happening with the cybersecurity workforce. And we recommended something like a Bureau of Cybersecurity Statistics or a similar organization focused on data that would be that center of gravity in the government around this important element. That could live at CISA, for example. It, it could. Um, it could. Statistical agencies live around the the government. Karen has been in an agency with a statistical agency as well, so knows that well. Yes, yeah, several. So that's probably one of my favorite recommendations that came out from the group overall, because it's been talked about and it's been proposed. And it was focused, I think, initially when it came out into the press, uh, was around cyber incidences and trying to get information around types of cyber incidences and those things like that. And um, and you look at CyberSeq, which is already out there, another foundational effort, but you're looking at the data sources. And when you really start looking at the government, the government is about information and it's a trusted broker for information. So look at Department of Justice. There's a Bureau of Justice Statistics. It's almost like anything you want to know about, you know, some type of law enforcement issue. There is a a statistical piece associated with it, just like the Bureau of Labor Statistics, just like the census, right? Just like Energy Information Agency, where it has. And so there's there is an established government framework work around these statistical agencies that makes their information valid and a reliable source. So, you know, instead of us intuiting that we know that we need so many sure. um, forensics analysis, uh, you know, people to close the gap, both in private sector and in public sector, a Bureau of Cyber Statistics could actually start measuring and looking at what's working, what isn't, and making statistically valid comments, predictions about where we are on the workforce. And let's talk about a moment for what you found at CISA's own efforts, which was the seed of this entire work that expanded to the government-wide and industry-wide look. But is CISA itself doing a good job in what it's supposed to do with respect to workforce development? So they are. And um, Congress was very specific about um, the areas that we were supposed to be looking at them. It was around specific things like diversity, right, scalability, those types of things. They, um, They had a series of programs that I think everybody, when the study team brought it forward, were amazed at the amount of programs that um, CDET and CISA were actually working on. And Congress was uh, specifically interested in one particular program. And through this work, they found that they're doing, you know, five other programs, four other programs. But what really has to happen is, are these really the right programs? So the recommendation was, hey, you know, you guys should really take a look at this. And if these are the right things, and we looked at a bunch of things saying that's why you need the governance strategy, that's why you need this, you know, the strategy overall going forward is because they're doing a heck of a job with the minimum resources that they have. 
but we really have to know, are these activities that they're doing really producing the outcomes that we want, which is closing the gap. And so, and really helping with the workforce. And there, there is a debate, which this is why academia is so important to this discussion as well, between training and education and competency-based, right, versus, and skills-based. And how do you bring that all together so that you can have individuals who can demonstrate they have the competencies and the skills to be able to perform the job? In essence, the government needs to, and the components need to determine first that they're doing the right thing, even if they're doing it, not only doing it well, but doing the right thing, because you can do the wrong thing well and doesn't help. So they got to do the right thing. And then it has to have some kind of way of reducing duplication, essentially is what you're saying, so that it can be more efficient. Yeah. And it's even more complex because there are there are near-term, mid-term, and long-term focus programs. And so the coordination and go-forward plan and the foundation of, the, of each is different. So near-term is in-service training, things like the Cyber Reskilling Academy, uh, people that are you know, in, a, uh, in the workforce now getting up to speed on current needs for cybersecurity, both technically and also operationally and managerial uh, considerations. Then there's the midterm, which is sort of the entry-level workforce, the people coming out of vocational schools, colleges and universities, community colleges, to, to drive the workforce pro- forward from an entry-level perspective. And then you've got the long-term, the K-12, to where there is, you know, kids need to learn about cybersecurity just like they learn about history and English um, uh, as, part of their, as part of their set of foundational skills for the 21st century. And so the, the answers and approaches that, that CISA, working with the agencies and, and NCD wants to take, are going to look a little bit different for each category, but there ought to be a pipeline flow that kind of addresses the whole picture. And underlying all of this work, I get the sense that you have that you have the sense that the near term problems are getting more urgent because the dangers of of a real cybersecurity disaster keep lapping closer and closer to our shores. And also that this is not something that can be characterized like a moonshot, like we're going to cure cancer. But it sounds like an ongoing effort, something we're going to have to live with, just like disease control for pretty much now on. Well, and so I think um, as Dan talked about breaking it out into short-term, mid-term, long-term, and and the study worked on that, when you look at some of the programs that uh, CISA is actually doing, they do try to break them out into short-term, mid-term, long-term, right? And the other thing which um, the study brings forward that uh, CISA is also looking into are non-traditional areas, right? Like non-traditional Um, You don't have to have a computer science degree, right? So the report also spends a lot of time examining the cyber talent management system, where Congress also gave DHS those authorities, right, to be able to streamline, for lack of a better term, bringing people in and making it more competitive with private industry. But you're also like measuring aptitudes and skills as the person comes through this system, right? So you could easily go down a rabbit hole about four-year degrees and all these other things like that. And that's that's the short-term piece, right? And so um, this is, it's a program that um, launched and Angie Bailey, a little shout out to Angie Bailey, who's also a Napa fellow, implemented that before she left, but it was in conjunction with CISA and the DHS CIO. So, you know, that's a program that Congress gave 
DHS specific authority for. When it's successful, because I keep saying when it's successful, everybody else says if it's successful, it's when it's successful, then it needs to be examined about how do you then scale that program to other agencies and be able to give them the authority so that you can streamline the hiring process. So so the workforce in the short term is highlighting things that are not new to you, Tom, that you've covered is a lot of, well, you know, the challenges or the barriers to entry into federal workforce. And so, you know, again, if you go to these non-traditional approaches, you're attracting new people can you reduce that frustration so that you can bring them in to close those skill gaps? And then like Dan said, do training while they're on site, right? Like do training on the job training and be partnered with private sector as well as academia to do, to close that midterm gap. So that has to get institutionalized. That's really what the report is focused on is like, there's a convergence of great leadership, personalities, programs, all the tools are there. So what the study is saying is, hey, get this strategy and get this governance structure in place so it can continue to address this problem going into the future, just like you said. So Dan, to wrap it all up, would you say then that you have presented a pretty good blueprint that if Congress and the agencies and the White House do all their part, we could really have a great, what do they say, all the wood behind the right arrowhead as we head toward better cyber? Yeah, and that's the role of the National Academy. I think that's why Congress sought the perspective of the Academy, which brings together academic experts, former government leaders like Karen and myself, um, you know, other subject matter experts who have had considerable careers and expertise in particular areas. And so as with other Academy studies, we, we tried to step back and say, all right, here's the immediate question that Congress asked. In order to answer this question, there's a larger problem that we can help define and help move the, the ball forward uh, and, and leave a pathway for, for government to proceed, uh, which is what we hope to do with this study. All right. Let's hope they read it. It's only 94 pages, not too big by federal reports. Dan Chenock and Karen Evans co-chaired the Cyber Workforce Study for the National Academy of Public Administration. Thank you both for being with me. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to the NAPA report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, And we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, So my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best, and so we now have people who work for me all over the world, and as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five, Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling, not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.